Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. 2017 was a really interesting year, and there are a lot of people from Michigan who had standout years. We're going to spend the end of our year here at Detroit Today talking to a few individuals who had standout moments in their lives and careers this year. Today, we're joined by Barbara McQuaid. She is the former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. McQuaid reached local and national prominence several years ago as the prosecutor of former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick's trial. Since then, she's become a criminal and civil law lecturer at the University of Michigan and is frequently a national analyst for media outlets on the proceedings of the Department of Justice. The reason Barbara McQuaid is now in the private sector is because she was fired by the Trump administration, just as the other Obama-era federal attorneys were told, suddenly pack up and leave their offices. It's with that moment in March of this year that we begin our conversation with Barbara McQuaid. Barbara, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Glad to be here. Yeah. So let's go back to the day you found out you were fired. You uh, did you know? Asked to resign, please. Asked to resign. Okay, I got it. No, it's, it's, it's essentially the same thing, I think. Right, and and we should be clear that this happens when you have uh, a turnover in the White House. There, there isn't anything terribly unusual about it, but there was something surprising, I guess, about the timing, maybe of uh, of, of this happening. But but let's go back to that day and and talk about whether you knew. This was going to happen. Yeah, no, I mean, it is, as you say, customary for new presidents to appoint their own people to be U.S. attorneys. And uh, so I think all of us uh, expected at some point during this year uh, we would be replaced. Um, uh, right around the time of the inauguration, uh, all of the U.S. attorneys were asked to participate in a conference call where we were asked to hold over for now until our successors could be identified. And that made sense. They wanted an orderly transition. They didn't want everyone leaving all at once. Um, and that made a lot of sense. And so I think most of us anticipated that we would be leaving, um, you know, here and there over the course of the year. I had already been talking to the University of Michigan about coming to teach at the law school in the fall, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it was done rather abruptly on a Friday afternoon. Uh, the first word I had was from our public affairs officer who said, I'm so sorry, I just heard the news. And I, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but the Department of Justice actually issued a press statement at 3 p.m., uh, but didn't begin calling uh, the U.S. attorneys until after wow. uh, after that. And so we started learning from each other. You know, you become friends with other U.S. attorneys around the country. And so I started hearing from some of my colleagues in alphabetical order. And so I knew it was only a matter of time before they got, they got to the to M's. M. <laughs> yeah, and, and they did. And so, um, and so the only thing that was, uh, I think, frustrating about that was that it was abrupt. They asked us to leave immediately. I ended up sticking around for another couple of weeks just mm -hmm. to help wind things down and uh, transition things to other people in the office because I think most of us are, you know, career professionals who care about the work and wanted to see that it got done and, and handled well. Uh, to date, I still don't have a successor. Yeah. Uh, I have a wonderful um, uh, successor in, in the acting U.S. Attorney, Dan Lemish, who mm -hmm. was uh, my top deputy, who I think is doing a fabulous job at some point. I'm sure President Trump will nominate someone. Um, you know, But in the meantime, I don't know why it was so urgent to get all of us out of there on that particular day, which I thought was a little disruptive to the work um, and to the service that the Justice Department provides to the American people. Yeah, and, and give us an idea of what that work meant to you? How long had you been in the U.S. Attorney's Office? And had had being the U.S. Attorney, uh, was that something that you had always aspired to? Uh, it was not something I'd always aspired to, but I did love the job. I love the work. It's a chance to do, you know, I always tell my students that you should work, look for work that is 
um, interesting, challenging, and important. And I found the work of U.S. Attorney to be off the charts in all three of those areas. It was so interesting. It was so challenging. And I found it to be so important. Um, in addition to the prosecution work, uh, the prevention work we did, the community outreach that work that we did, uh, I, I thought was incredibly important. But I'd been in the office for 19 years. Mm -hmm. I had been an assistant U.S. attorney for 12 before I was appointed by President Obama to be the U.S. attorney, which I did for a little over seven years. And I loved the work, so it was very painful to leave um, a place I had worked for almost 20 years. I had obviously a lot of friendships and relationships there, people I miss, I'm you know still friends with, but I don't get to see every day, and the chance just to do important, meaningful work. Um, you know, I certainly miss. I'm very happy to be where I've landed, um, but uh, but I do miss uh, uh, you know being in um, the midst of work that is so important. Yeah. Well, uh, just for sort of parallel construction here, let's go back to the day you found out you were going to be U.S. attorney. Uh, who calls you on the phone? To tell you, is it the president? Uh, it's not the president. Um, <laughs> as we've heard, it's um, the president typically keeps arm's length between yeah. the White House and U.S. attorneys to avoid any appearance of improper political influence. And we've seen some Supposed violations. To, right? <laughs> we've seen some violations of that norm in this administration. No, you know, you, you sort of learn uh, step by step. I had gone through a nomination process with a selection committee. And so I heard from our senators, Senator Levin and Senator Stabenow, uh, that they were going to recommend me to the president. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I had to interview with a group at the Department of Justice. Uh, so, you know, you sort of work through that step. So it comes in stages. But when I first heard that I had, it was official, was Christmas Eve 2009 when I got a call from the Department of Justice's uh, congressional liaison to say that the Senate um, had been very busy passing Obamacare that day. And when they got the end of the business, they also confirmed lots and lots of nominees, including U.S. attorneys. And so I had been uh, confirmed on that day. So I guess that's when I heard that it was official. Yeah. Uh, and when you start in that job, is it is it just overwhelming? I mean, are you just sort of drinking from the fire hose trying to figure out how things work? Or is it a smoother kind of transition? Uh, my transition was particularly um, interesting because the very next day, Christmas Day, we had Umar Farouk Abdul-Muttalib right? uh, attempt to blow up a plane over Detroit. So the work got very busy very quickly. <laughs> uh, and uh, But, you know, I, I felt um, that I was in the right place at the right time. My past work had been in national security and we have an incredible team here in Detroit and so uh, we worked together on that case to get what, what I found to be a favorable resolution. Yeah, The, the, the terrorism cases uh, stand out I think in the last decade or so uh, of work in that U.S. Attorney's Office as, as sort of signature work. Talk about what it was like to be there at that time. It was terribly important work but also uh, frightening and somewhat different from the, the the regular work of the U.S. attorney. When uh, you know, after nine eleven, our office started its first ever national security unit, and I was very eager to be part of that work because I care very much about protecting the public. There are also a lot of interesting legal issues that come out of that with emerging technology, but I also think it's incredibly important not to overreach when you're in the area of national security. It's very easy to make assumptions, jump to conclusions out of a genuine effort to protect the public, but you also have to make sure that you're not stereotyping communities uh, in an effort to protect the public. And so uh, there, it requires a very balanced and sober approach. Yeah. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Barbara McQuaid, the former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, now a professor at the University of Michigan. We are talking about the year 
that was 2017 for Barbara McQuaid, the changes in her career, the things that opened up, the things that she left behind as part of our end-of-year look back at 2017 here on Detroit Today. You know, I'm really curious uh, I'm really curious about when you look back on your time as U.S. Attorney. Are there cases that stand out either because you feel like uh, they marked a high point of that office's performance and, just as important, are there cases you look back at and think, boy, maybe we could have done that differently or maybe we could have done that better? Oh, sure. I think that, um, you know, there's certainly some high-profile cases uh, that stand out. We had a cancer doctor who was lying to patients about having cancer so that he could bill uh, Medicare for expensive chemotherapy treatments, you know, lying to people about cancer. That was an incredible case with real victims who were hurt by this doctor. Um, A couple cases that I'm particularly proud of is creating, we created the office's first ever civil rights unit, and it did wonderful work. It still does wonderful work, but two cases in particular stand out. Um, We filed lawsuits against Pittsfield Township and also the city of Sterling Heights to require them to permit the building of a mosque and an Islamic school, Mm -hmm. which had been denied based on what we believe to be pretextual zoning issues. And those structures are being built and helping those communities, um, and we believe was an instance of religious discrimination. And ultimately, both of those communities agreed to do the right thing. And so I'm very proud of that work. We had a couple of very significant corporate fraud cases, one involving Takata with defective airbags based on concealing testing results, Um, and a case against Volkswagen involving cheating on emissions tests polluting the air with their diesel vehicles. So, you know, really proud of those cases. I'm also proud of a lot of cases that don't get big headlines, but where people work very hard, kind of under the radar to protect our community, working with real victims, um, helping to make them whole, uh, helping them to receive justice. And there are lots of great professionals in the U.S. Attorney's Office and federal agencies who work hard every day, whose cases never see headlines, but who are also providing great justice to the community. And then cases you asked about maybe that uh, we could have done better or didn't go so well. Um, You know, one that comes to mind, we had a case against a militia group that um, resulted in a judgment of acquittal. Um, I, to this day, believe that that group was dangerous. That group was um, engaged in training and plotting to kill police officers. Um, You never know uh, how long you should have an undercover operation go. You Mm -hmm. don't want to wait too long and have uh, real people get hurt. On the other hand, the longer you let it play out, the more evidence you can collect. Um, We got to a point where uh, they had made bombs and had said that they were going to execute their plot in the spring. It got to be spring, and we decided, I decided, uh, the time had come to take them down because I didn't want to risk that they would really kill people. That case ended up in a judgment of acquittal by the court. Um, And although I think reasonable minds can disagree, that judge uh, found that no conspiracy had been proven. Um, You know, it's, it's one I wish had gone differently. Um, but uh, I, I probably uh, would make the same decision today yeah. uh, just in an effort to protect the public. And, and how long and in what way do cases like that sit with you? I mean, that's a really interesting example of you're trying to prevent something bad from happening in which maybe people lose their lives. Uh, and the court says, well, you're not you're not quite there. I, I, I can't do that. Does that does that sit with you? Is that the kind of thing that, uh, you know, in the middle of the night <laughs> you're up thinking about? Um, it's one I think about a little bit because you try to draw lessons from it. I mean, we had other cases later that we where we had to make similar decisions. We had a couple of cases where we had ISIS supporters 
who were um, on social media talking about things that they wanted to do that were potentially dangerous. And so I think uh, you try to learn a lesson from that case, but maybe not learn the lesson too well, right? You don't want to be so gun-shy that you're afraid to take down a case even when there is a threat to public safety. And so um, in all of those cases, you really try to assess uh, all of the risks to the public, the how it's going to play out in court and make your best decision also choosing a charge that you think you can support and not charging something that might be harder to prove in court, I think is also a lesson that you take away from a case like that. Um, but it's hard. And, you know, I think the public would be pleased to know that when those cases are going, um, there are representatives from the FBI, there are representatives from the U.S. Attorney's Office, there are experts in Washington who are discussing all of the pros and cons on these cases and certainly want to make sure that cases are decided uh, under the law but also with a strong uh, regard for public safety. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever get to talk to the judges or, in some cases, the jurors who decide, yeah, you just didn't convince me in this case. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't vote to convict. I, I've never talked to the judge in this case who was uh, you know, the judge ab- about this. I mean, uh-huh. I've certainly talked to this judge about many other things, but not about this decision in particular. I'm not sure it would be appropriate to do that. I read the opinion <laughs> written about it. But yes, I always took advantage of the opportunity to talk to jurors after a case. Um, oftentimes judges would allow the attorneys to talk to jurors. You find out so much. Um, my big takeaway was just how um, smart and effective jurors really are. Sometimes people worry about, uh, you know, 12 strangers and we're putting our case in their hands. Uh, can we trust them to do the right thing? And overall, I found them to collectively really understand what's going on. They help explain things to each other and persuade each other. And collectively, they really see everything that's going on. And so I think you learn a lot by talking to jurors afterwards. And it, it always sort of reinforces in my mind the importance of the jury system in protecting um, the defendant from overreach by the government, um, but also in taking their jobs very, very seriously, their oath seriously, yeah. the law as it's given to them, um, and their task. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of times people think jurors uh, are impatient or resentful of the process, right? We get that that jury notice thing in the mail, and you're like, oh, I don't want to go do that, or how can I get out of it? But, but everyone I've ever talked to who's gotten through the process and gotten onto a jury talks about how seriously they take it and how weighty the process seems when you're in the middle of it, right? It's, it'd be very hard, I think, to just blow it off. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that the, the theory of, of ju- jury duty is um, frustrating to all of us because we're busy and we're thinking about all the other things in our lives that we don't have time uh, to, to do this. But once you get there and you make it in the box and you take the oath and you realize you have someone's liberty in your hands, um, on the other hand, uh, allegations of a very serious crime, uh, I think that the seriousness of that um, becomes very real for those jurors, and they end up taking their duties very seriously, and in the end, find it maybe not enjoyable because it's a hard, hard job, but to have been deeply satisfying. And it's also an opportunity for citizens to exercise their citizenship. Yeah. It's it's very rare that we ask citizens to do much. You know, we ask you to vote. We ask you to maybe consider volunteering to serve in our military. But we do ask you to serve on juries, and jurors have great power. And so I think uh, when they've exercised that power, they do find it satisfying in the yeah. end. Yeah. Okay, so you've had this long time as a prosecutor, I mean, a very specific role in our government and in our society, and now you're off to, to something different. Talk <clears throat> talk about what you'll miss the most about being a prosecutor. Uh, what will you miss most about the office that uh, you've left behind? 
Well, mostly I miss the great professionals that I had a chance to work with. Over almost 20 years, you've become friends with uh, some of these people, and I'm still friends with them, but you know, you don't see them in the same way that you saw them every day. But um, I really took great satisfaction. Uh, the people who work in the U.S. Attorney's Office are sort of self-selected uh, people who are you know, very talented lawyers who could be earning a great deal more money in the private sector, but who have instead chosen to dedicate their talents to serving the public. And it's wonderful to be surrounded by people like that mm-hmm. who really just care about doing the right thing. It's wonderful to sit around a table and discuss cases uh, from the perspective of what is in the best interest of justice here. Hard problems where you have, you know, on the one hand, questions about public safety or or greed or real harm to the public, and on the other, someone's liberty, what's fair. Um, it's a wonderful uh, environment to spend time in. And so I really miss that process and I really miss the people that I worked with. I also had a chance to do a lot of wonderful community engagement and I miss being out and we did this wonderful gang intervention program called Ceasefire with quarterly call-ins mm-hmm. of gang mm-hmm. members where we talked to young, young people about turning their lives around. That was really rewarding work. So uh, I miss that. I miss the work and I miss the people. Okay. After a quick break, we're going to come back to our conversation with former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid. We're going to talk about what's next for her. Stay with us on Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking with Barbara McQuaid, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. We're talking to her as part of our 2017 year-end specials here on Detroit Today, where we're talking to a few people who had standout moments in their lives and careers in 2017. So you leave the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, sometime after after March of, of this year, Barb, and there's all kinds of speculation about what you will do. And I can remember a conversation I had with someone uh, right around that time who said, she is going to run for governor. She's going to try to be the governor of Michigan. And I thought to myself, well, I guess that seems that seems like something that that that, that could be possible. It doesn't necessarily seem like something I would necessarily have concluded she might do, but there was there was some buzz about that for a while. Um, so talk about the kinds of things you thought about doing uh, after after being asked to leave the the U.S. Attorney's Office because of a change in administration, and then how you settled on what you're doing now. Yeah, I, there were a lot of reports that I was looking at public office, but I never did, did, never was. I don't think it's my cup of tea. I love no? I love public service, but the idea of running for elective office, um, I think, is um, just, just not my cup of tea. No, the idea really? of asking people for their vote, asking people for their money. Um, and once you declare you're running, half the state immediately hates you. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know. This. It's a blood sport. People are incredibly mean. I don't know that I... Um, am willing to make the sacrifices it takes to That's run for public office. I, when I, you know, there are many candidates I'm supporting, and when they say they're running, I say thank you for the sacrifices you're making. And I don't know that people understand the sacrifices you make when you run for public office. The time away from family. I have yeah. kids and a husband I love. I love to spend time with them. The time away from family, um, and you know the the garbage that you put up with in terms of uh, the mean spirited 
uh, falsehoods. <laughs> right. I just don't know that uh, that any of that's for me. But I, I would love, you know, I love to find ways to serve. So when I thought about what I did want to do, you know, I had opportunities. Many of my colleagues who are U.S. attorneys around the country are in private practice, making very, very large salaries. Um, and that doesn't appeal to me all that much, practicing uh, in private. You know, uh, you, you, we all need a certain amount of money to support ourselves, but how much do you really need? Um, and what I wanted to do is work where I could have a positive impact. And so that's what I was exploring. Were there, you know, nonprofit organizations? Were there foundations? Uh, and then the University of Michigan Law School, my alma mater called, and I thought, wow, what a wonderful opportunity to have a positive impact, particularly now when the rule of law has been so challenged. Yeah. And it seems more important than ever to help law students develop a deep understanding and respect for our Constitution and our legal institutions. And so uh, I was really thrilled to be able to join the University of Michigan Law School faculty. Yeah. You know, when you hearing you talk about uh, the, the frustrations you have with the political process and politics, you know, it reminds me of, uh, of the distinction between the world that you operated in and politics. And I'm not sure everyone always understands that, that that the third branch, uh, the judicial branch, which is not just judges and courts, but also uh, the attorneys uh, who, who prosecute and defend uh, cases in, the, in that system, they, they really live in a different world. And, and it reminds me of a story. Um, when I was, co- I, I covered the U.S. Supreme Court for five terms in, in the 2000s, and it was, it was a fascinating uh, time to, to, to be doing it, but it was also fascinating work in the sense that I learned an awful lot about that third branch that I didn't know before. And I remember we were sitting in, in the court one day, and I don't remember who was arguing a case, but somebody was up there uh, just just saying things that were not that were not true, uh, just, just repeating falsehood, falsehood after falsehood. And at one point, Justice Scalia who had been sitting pretty quietly through the uh, through the arguments up to that point, turned to this lawyer and said, "Listen, if you want to come out here and just you know repeatedly lie, you need to go across the street to Congress." You know, he pointed over toward the Capitol. He's like, "They do that all the time over here. Over here, we need you to 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 stick to the facts." And I I, I remember that really well because I thought it was it so captured the difference between those two branches. And literally just across First Street in Washington, you've got one side where you really do have to stick to truth and fact and evidence. And the other side where people just do what they want and say what they want. Yeah. um, You know, when you're a lawyer, um, uh, despite perhaps some negative perceptions, when you're in court, you're an officer of the court. You're bound by ethical rules uh, uh, to speak the truth. And I'm used to playing against opponents who play that way. Um, and so I don't know that I have what it takes to play in the political field where people will zing allegations at you without any basis in fact. Right. That's, a, that's a blood sport, and uh, I'm not sure I'm steeped in that. You know, I won't say never. Maybe the day will come when I change my mind. Uh, but for right now, um, I think that I can do meaningful and important work. You know, as I've said before, I think work should be challenging, interesting, and important. And uh, I've got all three of those things at the University of Michigan Law School. Yeah. Uh, how hard would you think it is for people to make that opposite transition. I'm thinking of someone like Jeff Sessions, right? He was a politician. Now he's the attorney general of the United States. Is is some of the difficulty I think we've seen him have maybe sort of caught up in that difference between those sides of the of uh, First Street in Washington, those sides of, of the, the branches in our government. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Now, he had been a U.S. attorney earlier in his career. But, right. um, but you are right, and I think we see this occasionally with statements that President Trump makes in his tweets and the like, um, 
where uh, you know he doesn't always demonstrate a respect for the rule of law or the independence of the Department of Justice. I mean, the Justice Department is not the president's personal lawyer. It is an independent branch that is uh, representing the people and uh, defending the Constitution. The oath that people who work for the Justice Department take is based on defending the Constitution, not serving the president. And yeah. So I think maybe people who see the world in political terms don't always um, quite understand that distinction. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Barbara McQuaid, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. We're talking to her as part of our year end here at Detroit Today. We're talking with a few individuals who had standout moments in their lives and careers. Um, let's talk about the work at the university. Teaching, I think, is one of the highest callings uh, in our in our culture. Um, and I, I, I'm always curious about how students at a university like the University of Michigan reflect the times that they're either grew up in or the, the times that they're learning in now. And this seems to me to be an extraordinary time to be a law student uh, at a time when the the very value of the law and the idea of canons of law and things that we respect, uh, uh, irrespective of party uh, or partisanship, are are under attack. W w give us an idea of what the climate is like in a law school classroom. Uh, in 2017. I think it's a really interesting time to be a law student. There's so much swirling around. There's a lot of interest in, you know, students come to law school for a variety of reasons, but I you know I've talked to some who became um, very interested in the law um, because of their outrage in response to police-related shootings mm -hmm. um, and, and thought that I want to be a civil rights lawyer and help uh, change that uh, reality. Um, and also with um, the Robert Mueller investigation, many people are finding that very interesting. And it provides a lot of opportunity for us to talk about all of these things in the classroom every day as we're discussing legal principles in the criminal law. Every day we see some headline that is playing <laughs> out in the real world. So it's been really fun to, you know, they'll sometimes ask questions um, about things that they've read in the newspaper and we'll relate them to some of the issues that we're talking about in class. So it's been a lot of fun. It reminds me of the same thing that kind of inspired me to my career, which was Watergate. Um, huh. Watergate is kind of the first news issue of the day I remember being aware of as huh. a child. And um, I, it inspired me, actually, to become a journalist. I was a journalist, uh, studied right. it in college. The same college. place I was, right, <laughs> at and the University of Michigan. <laughs> absolutely. And my first job was, was um, as a journalist in Rochester, New York, and it was Watergate. You know, I read all the president's men um, that really wanted <laughs> me to, or it made me want to help um, you know, be part of this watchdog of government and unveil um, uh, illegal activities by people in power. And, and I think it's the same things that attract people to the law. Um, you know, public corruption prosecutors are really involved very much in some of the same things that reporters do. And we're seeing that new golden age of journalism and golden age of prosecution yeah. on the special counsel team. So it has a lot of parallels, I think, to that Watergate era that inspired a lot of people to become lawyers. And I think we're seeing that again. Yeah. So in some ways, there is a silver lining to right, all of this. Right, right. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I've thought of that parallel. I have thought of the parallel between what we're seeing unfold right now in Watergate, but lots of people making that that connection. I hadn't thought of of the student sort of angle of that. Um, so, so do you find that the students are are more driven, perhaps, than they might have been a, a few years ago, more focused? 
I don't know, but they're very engaged on these issues. I I think it's such an interesting uh, blend of what they're learning in the classroom, which may seem very theoretical based on old cases that they're reading, and then seeing illustrated in real life in very relevant terms. So I think it's very exciting. Um, there have been They have organized on their own a number of panel discussions around this topic because they just want to learn more about it and different ways to think about it from a legal perspective. So yeah. I think it's an exciting time to be a law student. Yeah. You know, one thing that I hear from my conservative friends, uh, either at the university or other places, is that uh, that it's hard to it's hard to make sure that the, the that all the voices get heard and are included on campus? It would seem like this is a time when attention to that is even more important, right? You've got the uh, a very divided uh, country. You have all of these very important questions that we're trying to sort through. I'm curious of what you're finding in the classroom. There are people who tell me, you know, in the classroom, if you're a conservative, if you're somebody who sort of is an outlier politically, it's really difficult uh, to have your point of view reflected or or respected. Talk about what that looks like uh, in your classroom. Yeah, I agree with you that that is an issue, you know, especially at the University of Michigan right now. There is this request by Richard Spencer to come speak, who is a white nationalist. And there are many students who are saying we should not allow him even to speak. Um, Others who say his message is hateful, but he has a right to express it. Let's give him a a space and ignore him. Uh, So there are lots of reactions to uh, what that's like. But I I think what you're talking about is just the student with um, a mainstream but conservative viewpoint who Mm -hmm. might feel stifled that, gee, I don't want to say this in the classroom because I'm afraid it won't be popular. Because maybe everybody else disagrees. Yeah. So one, one strategy that I try to use in my classroom is put yourself in the role of the advocate. I'm not asking you your opinion. I am asking you to take on the role of the prosecutor in this case, or I'm asking you to take on the role of the defense attorney in this case, because I think that gives them license to express a view without saying this is my view, which can be dangerous. But I do think it's important that we air all the views, because only by listening to opposing viewpoints can you really consider whether you have your own form your own, change your own. And so I try to use that strategy so that we get an opportunity to air all of those things. Sometimes I ask people who, to take that position that's the opposite of their own personal view uh, because I think that's useful too to force yourself to uh, come to grips with maybe some uh, arguments that are not so comfortable for you. Right, right. Uh, I'm curious of, uh, about w- what you try to teach your students about the role of the media. As, as someone who used to want to be a journalist and worked as a journalist for a while and now uh, at the sort of other end of a, of a, uh, a career as a, as a prosecutor, what's, what do you tell them about the role of, of the media and the work that they want to do? And I'm also really curious what their role, what their view is of media. I, I always imagine that students today consume far more of it than, than I would have when I was a student at the university 30 years ago. But um uh, but I also am certain that they see it differently, that they think of the media in different ways. I agree with you that I think students consume far more information than I did. You know, when I was in college, uh, you had to get a newspaper. And so you were limited as to how <laughs> many you might read in a day because you had to have physical possession of it. Maybe you'd watch a little bit of television. Maybe you'd listen to a little bit of radio and that was it. 
now they are getting lots and lots of news from lots of sources on their phones, uh, from their Twitter feeds. You, know, you and I were talking, we're, we find articles from The Atlantic and Mother mm-hmm. Jones and things mm-hmm. we might not otherwise have come across. Or podcasts are also a great source of information. And so students, I think, are more knowledgeable um, than ever. But I agree with you. I think they might also be a little more skeptical than ever because of the blast of fake news. And some of it is, in fact, fake, fake news. So how do you uh, sort of weed out the legitimate from the not so legitimate? And how do you decide for yourself uh, what information is credible and uh, what should be used to form your own opinions? Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we talk about that a little bit in uh, some of the, not so much in our classroom discussions, but in some of the settings that we've talked about in uh, panel discussions and other things is uh, how do you uh, th- think about these issues and what do you use to form to form your opinions? So, um, you know, to some extent, I think there's brand names matter uh, and that helps uh, to me, you know, credibility yeah. is, uh, is it is it a brand that I trust? Uh, that matters. I also think it's important to get out there and explore some opposing viewpoints, which not everybody wants to do, and it's not always pleasant to do. But I think that would be especially difficult with students. Yeah, what is the other side saying on this uh, issue? Um, the New York Times does a great feature where they say best writing from the left and the right mm-hmm. on this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's useful to see, um, you know, if we all live in our uh, thought bubbles, then we never really get to test our ideas in the marketplace of ideas, which is what our First Amendment is all about. And so I think it's important to listen to the viewpoints of others, even if we don't initially agree with them, or even if we never agree with them. It's really important to hear all sides. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about Barb McQuaid's take on the Mueller investigation, the investigation into the election of 2016. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Barbara McQuaid, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. We are talking to her as part of our year-end wrap-up here at Detroit Today, where we're talking to a few individuals who had standout moments in their lives and their careers. Barbara, I want to talk uh, to you about your role as media analyst, uh, something that's emerged since you were U.S. attorney. I see your name popping up in op-eds in the Washington Post from time to time. I see you on uh, cable news. And often the subject that you're talking about is this extraordinary, I think, investigation into uh, the Trump administration's relationship with the Russian government. Um, first, let's let's just get your take on what we're seeing, uh, what we're seeing unfold, how important uh, it is, and maybe even how how extraordinary it is. Yeah, I think one thing that's really important to understand is, you know, Robert Mueller's mission isn't to take down President Trump, which I think sometimes people think is what, what he's doing. <laughs> he's, he's out to get him. He's trying to undo <laughs> the results of an election. I hear that all the time. Yeah, I, I think he has a really important job, and that is to try to get an understanding of what the Russians did to interfere with our election, which is uh, such uh, a threat to our democracy that uh, our greatest adversary in the world would control the outcome of our presidential election. Yeah. And so his mission is to identify links between Russian interference in the election and the Trump campaign. Was there any connection there? And then any other matters that might arise um, along the way. And so, so far, we've seen him indict uh, or otherwise charge four people 
There was the campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, and his deputy, who were charged with unrelated crimes so far, um, fraud cases, um, pretty extensive money laundering of $75 million based on undisclosed lobbying uh, for the government of Ukraine. Um, and then we've had two others that are more closely related to Russian interference with the campaign. One, this um, false statements guilty plea by George Papadopoulos, who was a foreign policy advisor, who lied about some overtures he received from the Russian government to set up meetings with the Trump campaign. Um, and then most recently, Michael Flynn, who was the national security advisor, not just a campaign official, but a White House official for 24 or so days, who lied to the FBI about conversations he had with Russians about foreign policy before the Trump administration was in office and really undermining some of the things that President Obama was doing in the last days of his presidency. So it does seem like uh, Mueller is inching closer to some connections, but um, I am certain that he will look at the evidence carefully, gather all the evidence he can, and make very careful decisions about what, if any, additional charges he makes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you look at the career of, of Bob Mueller, the things that he's done and the way he's done them, I mean, there's no question this is a very meticulous person. This is a very cautious person. He doesn't get out in front of uh, of what he has. And yet, whenever something happens in this case, whenever he makes an announcement about an indictment or a plea deal, everybody else runs 30 yards ahead of him, right? I mean, everybody's reaction is, oh, my goodness, this proves X, Y, and Z, or this suggests uh, A, B, and C. And and I, I would imagine that as a prosecutor, uh, you sort of watch that and think, oh, that's not the way this works, right? Uh, he's He is where he is. He may have more. Uh, but you you can't make assumptions or as many assumptions, I guess, about the things that he said as people are intend are inclined to. Uh, yeah, and I think one thing to keep in mind too is um, the standard for charging someone is much higher than it might be for reporting about something or even talking about it. Uh, the standard to charge someone is under the Justice Department, at least, is a reasonable likelihood of conviction at trial based on that standard of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to be found by a unanimous jury. So pretty high legal standard before you decide to charge someone. Um, uh, you know, that means, you know, you might have some evidence that your gut tells you is sufficient to charge a crime. That's not going to be enough. You have to have a reasonable likelihood of success. Doesn't require a slam dunk, but uh, reasonable. And so um, it, it's going to take a fair amount of evidence, I think, to charge additional people. The fact that Michael Flynn is cooperating, I do think, is very significant because he was a very high-level person. You know, there were some statements made about George Papadopoulos, this foreign policy advisor, who was fairly low level, what could he know? Well, Michael Flynn is very much the opposite of that, someone who's a very high level mm -hmm. um, and likely is in a position to have information about whether there was, um, you know, the word they like to use is collusion. That's not really a legal term, but right. links, connections, coordination between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. And so he seems like someone who now has an incentive, has now agreed to cooperate. And if the information is there, he may be able to provide at least some of it. Yeah. So so in your view, is that a is that a big step forward or as big a step forward as it was made into after it happened? I mean, is is he the sort of uh, snitch, I suppose, who who could get everybody else and the administration into trouble? I think it could potentially be very significant. Of course, um, you know, no one's going to build a case on him alone. Uh, he's an admitted liar, so he has some credibility problems in that regard. <laughs> but um, it reminds me of the way that in the Kilpatrick prosecution, uh, we were able to 
um, used Derek Miller, who mm-hmm. pleaded guilty and ended up cooperating as sort of a narrator. So you have to corroborate everything that he's going to say with other evidence, but you can get that independently in the form of bank records, email messages, text messages, letters, memos, um, other kinds of things. Um, and if you have all those things, oftentimes it is that narrator, though, who can help you link those things and make some sense of them. You know, you've got this email going back over to this person, and they can say, oh, that's because we were talking about subject X. Oh, and suddenly something that was not really clear um, all comes together. You see how these pieces fit together. So it seems perhaps in that way he can fill in some gaps in their knowledge Mm -hmm. and could potentially serve as that narrator uh, ultimately if they're able to build the case with independent evidence. Yeah. Uh, How close, in your judgment, is this getting to the president? The president's reaction always seems to suggest that he feels like, you know, everyone's on his back, that, that, that he's the target of this. I, I always think, well, maybe if he'd stop tweeting so much, he might not seem as, as much in the crosshairs as he is. No one has said anything specific about him. It's getting closer in terms of, I think, his son-in-law and maybe his son who may have made some false statements uh, but but is this sort of tightening the circle around the Oval Office? Yeah, I think first most lawyers would advise any client to not talk about a case yeah, like right. this because be quiet, right? yeah, <laughs> um, you know you bring attention to it and also um, things you say could be held against you. You might decide on a different strategy later and regret something that you said in a moment of passion. So something that you said that's now on the record, right? Yeah, uh, oh sure, on those Twitter. Tweet- that's all admissible sure. if into, into court, right? Sure. I mean, you can explain it away and say, I was kidding, or I didn't mean it, or, I didn't have full information at that time. But but yes, it's, it's admissible. So uh, I think most lawyers would advise a client to not talk about this subject. But yeah, in terms of whether Mueller is looking at the inner circle, I think it's likely only because... They reached a cooperation deal with Michael Flynn that's fairly favorable to him. Mm-hmm. You know, they they agreed not to charge him with a lot of other things, charged him only with um, false statements. Now, I don't know that they had the evidence on other things, but there's been speculation that there are potentially other charges. Um, with a sentencing guideline range of zero to six months, mm-hmm. fairly lenient deal. Uh, it appears they're not going to charge his son. And so it looks like he got a pretty good deal. I would say Robert Mueller probably would not give someone such a good deal unless he believed that person had value to in exchange. And so what could that value be? Typically, it is the substantial assistance in the prosecution of others, and not just others, but others who are higher than you in a, a criminal organization. And so who is higher than National Security Advisor Michael Flynn? Not too many people. Um, you know, the president, the vice president, the yeah, chief of staff, uh, yeah. you know, maybe family members, Jared Kushner, some other senior advisors, a fairly small universe of people. So it would seem that this cooperation deal indicates that Michael Flynn has at least some information about some one or more people who are higher than him in the food chain. Yeah. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. My guest is Barb McQuaid. She's the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. We're talking to her as part of our year-end wrap-up here on Detroit Today, talking to a few individuals who had standout moments during 2017. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really curious also about the, the, the parallels you might see between what we're, what we're witnessing with the Russia investigation and something like Watergate. You said earlier that, that you thought there were parallels in sort of inspiration between the two, that, that people, young people watching this now might aspire to careers in journalism or, or law as a, as a result. But I wonder about the, the, the similarities here. Uh, is this, I've heard some people make direct comparisons between the two, saying, for instance, Mike Flynn it will become the John Dean 
of, of, of this investigation. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, you know, there were two lessons of, uh, of Watergate. If you ever read all the President's Men, which mm-hmm. I did, and I mm-hmm. love the book, there were sort of two takeaways there. One was follow the money. That yes. was the advice that Deep Throat yes. gave to the reporters. And it seems like that's what Robert Mueller is doing, following the money. The charges against Paul Manafort are financial in nature. There was a report yesterday that uh, Robert Mueller has subpoenaed Deutsche Bank, mm-hmm. which made mm-hmm. very significant loans to Donald Trump. So that, I think, is an interesting parallel uh, between here and Watergate because people are often motivated by money. Uh, money means that they had uh, either a profit motive or maybe they owed a debt, or maybe someone had leverage over someone else. And so following the money is um, often a way a prosecutor proceeds in a case because it can be very illuminating about... Connects the dots. It connects the dots. It tells you sources of money. It can tell you motivations. The other lesson of Watergate was that the cover-up can be worse than the crime. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the articles of impeachment that were drafted up for Richard Nixon, for which he resigned before they could be filed, was obstruction of justice. And so there have certainly been reports that... um, uh, there may be some indication that President Trump obstructed justice here. I mean, certainly evidence needs to be gathered. Um, but in asking FBI Director James Comey to let the investigation go with respect to Michael Flynn, if that happened, as James Comey has said, uh, if that happened, could that amount to obstruction of justice? And in the end, could that be uh, the the crime that gets charged against President Trump? So that would be another parallel to Watergate. Uh, that question, can the president obstruct justice? We've We've heard... People raised that before. Uh, I've seen some people draw parallels to the doubts about that, to uh, Nixon uh, sort of saying that that when the president does something, it's okay because he or she is the is the president. Um, is that is that a is that a sort of proper way to be viewing this? Can the president even be charged? for anything that he does as president. So in my, in my opinion, and, and people disagree with this, I think he cannot be charged criminally the way an ordinary citizen can be. At least that's the Department of Justice advisory opinion on that. And I think Robert Mueller is likely to follow that. Hmm. However, the remedy for misconduct is impeachment. You would uh, ask the, you know, submit a report to Congress uh, to uh, for them to do what they will do. And one of those remedies could be uh, articles of impeachment. But could a basis for impeachment be obstruction of justice? And I think the answer is yes. The argument you mentioned is that, well, since the president is the executive, the Constitution says that he should take care uh, to see that the laws are faithfully executed, then the Department of Justice is part of his—he's the boss. He gets to call the shots. He gets to say what to do. Yes, but— He um, has all kinds of powers, but he cannot exercise his powers for an unlawful purpose. For example, he also has the power to issue pardons. He has the power to appoint Supreme Court justices. He can do all of those things, but he can't do it in exchange for a bribe because that would be an improper purpose. And so I say similarly, he can't give directives to the Department of Justice if his motive is to end a legitimate investigation, including one that might reach his campaign. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm also... Thinking a lot these days about uh, something that that an uncle of mine once said to me uh, when I was a, a, a teenager. We were talking about uh, politics and and history, and and he said, you know, uh, when when Nixon resigned, it was the right thing to do. It was the thing that should have happened, but it wasn't great for the country. That that it that it. Um, that it damaged a part of the American spirit to see a president have to resign. And he said, you know, I would hope that that in the future that that uh, these things never, never happen again. And, and I find myself these days thinking a lot about um, 
that balance between uh, the need for justice to be to be done, for truth to be revealed, and the damage that that truth or justice could do to a culture that I, you know, I think is so poisoned with partisanship, so poisoned with resentment uh, of of one another. Um, it, it it's a frightening prospect almost that Mueller was hired and will do what he's going to do as much as it is a hopeful one. Yeah, um, I think that Watergate was a watershed moment in our history in terms of distrust of politicians. I think there was great trust of our leaders before then. Um, But I suppose it also exposed that that trust had been misplaced and that we should hold our uh, political leaders more accountable and there should be more transparency in the process. I do think it's a really big deal to sort of undo the results of a Democratic election. Sure. And so um, I don't think Robert Mueller will take it lightly if the evidence should point toward the president and he provides a report. But as I said, what I think he would likely do is provide a report to the House Judiciary Committee, members of Congress, to draw for, th- articles for, of for them to decide what they think is appropriate. I found this, uh, these allegations, this misconduct, and then for them to decide whether impeachment is the appropriate remedy. And how long do you imagine this will go on? I mean, and that's the other, that's the other question about our culture and, and governance is so long as these allegations, so long as these potential charges are kind of hanging out there, it's really hard to move forward and not be thinking about whether the, 20, the 2016 election was legitimate or not. It, it paralyzes things in a way. I agree. It's hard for the country to get anything done. If you were the Russians and you had set out to disrupt our election, this would be your <laughs> Congrats, dream come true, right? right? Wouldn't yeah. this be the greatest thing? You've, got, you've turned a country against each other. You've divided them uh, against each other. And now they're not getting anything done um, domestically or internationally. So it is painful and harmful for the country. In terms of how long, very difficult to predict. These cases take a long time because they're complex and you want to make sure you do them thoroughly. Every time you talk to a witness, you may learn about five additional people you need to interview. And, mm-hmm. and you want to do those interviews because you want to be thorough. But I will say this about Robert Mueller. I know him a little bit uh, from work when he was the FBI director and when he was the special master over the Volkswagen case, which we worked in. He has a reputation um, of working with urgency. Mm-hmm. He will drive his people to work very hard. I have no doubt they are working long hours, nights, weekends uh, to get this done. So it will take as long as it takes, but um, they will get it done as quickly as it possibly can be they're done. Not, they're not dawdling. I'm sure with that. Uh, I, I wonder what you make also of the discussion of pardons in this case, right? Uh, how the president can use his pardon power, whether that could undermine Mueller's investigation. And if it does, is that obstruction? I mean, it all seems to sort of wrap around itself over and over again. Yeah. And ultimately, I think the question of whether it amounts to um, high crimes or misdemeanors, the definition of impeachable offenses, will land on Congress. You know, it's a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. At what point do they find that it is too much and that he has abused his power. And so in some ways it becomes a political question. Uh, one would hope that as, as happened with Watergate, even the Republicans ultimately um, decided enough's enough and we put country over party. Um, so I, I don't know that uh, we've seen anything that would amount to that yet, but if it comes to that, one would hope that uh, members, regardless of party, uh, would at some point put country over party. Yeah. Okay. 
Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, lecturer now at the University of Michigan. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. All right. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. The program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Gus Navarro, Aaron Allen, and Ziad Butch. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET Sam Bobie. And this is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.